Yo, Chad, what if I told you there's a platform that could completely revolutionize your hiring strategy in a matter of hours? Yeah, I'd call bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit with AI for jobs powered by our friends at This Way Global. Okay, I'm listening. Uh, While everyone else is fishing in the same old talent pools, AI for Jobs can source over 160 million diverse candidate profiles. This Way Global has established unique partnerships with over 8,500 trusted diversity partners. So wait a minute. All of the hard on-the-ground work is already done. That's right, Cowboy. You can discover 300 qualified candidates per job rack instantly. Wow. It's like having a candidate sourcing magic wand. (laughs) Dude, if you had a magic wand, you would have Mexican pizzas all day. Mm. Uh, Stop distracting me, Sowash. AI for Jobs Advanced Matching Algorithm analyzes past applicants using trillions of historical matching events and over 1,600 data points. Now that is what AI should be doing, saving recruiters time on sourcing while they provide a white glove candidate experience. Let's wrap this shit up. I'm hungry. Listen up, kids. Revolutionize your hiring process today by jumping over to thiswayglobal.com and checking out AI for Jobs, where you can learn more about how to leverage AI for your recruiting instead of just writing poems and grocery lists. That is thiswayglobal.com. We out. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? It's your favorite guilty pleasure, also known as the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman, joined as always by my partner in crime, Chad Sowash. And today, we are just giddy, giddy, giddy like a schoolgirl to welcome Richard Bronson to the show. Richard, welcome. You are the founder and CEO of 70millionjobs.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Now, are, are we right in saying uh, Charles Bronson's little brother? Is that is that why you're on the show? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> Let's age everybody on the show real quick. Half brother. I'm going to rattle his cage. Actually, far more uh, frequently, the mistake is in confusing me with Richard Branson. That's, that, was, that's how, that was my next joke, but you beat me to it. Me to it. <laughs> it's a good joke, but yeah, I'm not him. I like, I like Death Wish better than I do millionaires going to space. With that being said, Richard, do us a favor. Give us a little more in-depth, maybe Twitter bio of, of who you are and, and a little bit about the 70 million jobs. Great. I'm speaking to you from Miami. So sexy. Yeah. Well, sometimes I think of uh, Indiana in much the same way, guys. <laughs> Lies. Uh, I launched my company, 70 million jobs, about five years ago. It is the first national for-profit employment platform for people with criminal records. We have helped thousands of deserving men and women with records land jobs. Okay. Certainly there's a back, back story to how I got involved with that. 
Yes, that's what I want to know. So not just anybody gets involved into a job board staffing in this HR space. So what actually drove you to, to, to give a shit about this population in the first place? Because to be quite frank, here in the US, I mean, it, there's not enough give a shit, I think, about helping individuals who've been incarcerated. So why did, why did you care so much? I'm from New York. I used to work on Wall Street. And I had a great deal of success working at some big investment banks. Uh, at a certain point, I actually became a partner at the infamous Wolf of Wall Street firm that I'm sure you're familiar with. <laughs> yes. In, in answer to your what you're wondering, yeah, it was pretty much as crazy as it was depicted in the Scorsese <laughs> film. Which, which character were you exactly? I appeared in the book. But I was not directly a character, thank God. But I certainly, they were my partners, you know, and I was part and parcel of the mayhem. I left there and moved to Florida where I launched my own financial services firm. Uh, and I grew it into a very large business and I made a sick amount of money. But along the way, I broke some laws <laughs> out of my greed and stupidity and impatience. And I paid dearly for those transgressions. Uh, aside from losing everything I had, I lost family, I lost friends, and ultimately I lost my freedom. I spent a couple of years in a federal prison. When I came out of prison, I had less than nothing. I was destitute and homeless, but I had discovered my calling in life, and that was to help my brothers and sisters coming out of prison so that they may have more opportunities than I did. And it became my calling in life. Uh, I worked for a time at a prominent nonprofit organization devoted to reentry and became its director. But I was dissatisfied with the lack of impact we were having. There is a three out of four chance that someone who's released from jail or prison will be arrested again, 75%. So, uh, and it turns out that unemployment correlates directly with recidivism don't get a job, you will go back to prison. If you do get a job, you almost never get in trouble again. So it was pretty clear to me. I thought, you know something, let's do things very differently. No one's ever approached reentry as a for-profit thing. It's always been these sleepy, well-meaning nonprofits or governmental agencies, you know, that have handled this. It's sort of like if the Department of Motor Vehicles was handling reentry. Um, you know, you wouldn't expect such great results. But the reality is, is one out of three adults in this country have a record. So it's a huge, huge issue. And it's one that I chose to take on uh, head on as, you know, the theme of my life. What does a typical customer look like? I mean, I have some certain industries that you probably uh, target, but what is a, are the big companies, little companies? Tell me about your customers. We have, well, we have a two-sided marketplace. So customers are job seekers with records on one side, but you're asking about the employers. Correct. Um, we uh, targeted from day one, the largest employers in the United States for no better reason than sort of like Willie Sutton said when asked, why do you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money is. Large employers have large numbers of uh, available positions. Mm -hmm. And my goal when I set out was, uh, part of it was because it sounded good, but I wanted to help a million people get jobs. So you can't do that working with small companies. You got to work with big ones. And that's what we targeted. 
Specifically, industry-wise, uh, there are certain industries that have long been relatively hospitable to this population. Uh, warehousing, shipping, manufacturing, uh, big box retail, hospitality, you know, those are the industries that don't require a great deal of educational background or job experience, and they have lots and lots of jobs. So that is primarily where we had the greatest amount of success. So right out of the gates, I really want to jump into the problem that we have in this country and why this is so important. First and foremost, the United States has 5% of the global population. And yet we have 25%, that's two five, 25% of the incarcerated population. Uh, so- that being said, we're obviously arresting a hell of a lot more than everybody else out there. And those individuals do need to come back for the most part into society, right? So this is a there's a there's a huge need here. Not to mention, let's take a look at today's landscape. We always we're we're talking about how we cannot find people to do jobs, and yet we have rules and uh, legislation where we have banned the box, which is not something that has happened nationally, right? So what what are you and your organization doing, not only to be able to help and impact on the outcome side, but also prospectively to help with pushing better regulation? Are you guys a part of that? Are you, are you with any lobby groups? How does that work? Um, you've raised a lot of good points. What we do is this. Uh, when, we, when I first started the company there, we, we amassed a huge pool of job seekers. Mm-hmm. You know, we had millions of them, you know, folks all over the United States who had committed a wide range of crimes who were eager to get a job. And unfortunately, the demand for their services was not all that robust. Through our, you know, education, through me speaking to so many heads of so many of the largest employers, for me being from me being a keynote speaker at Sherm's national convention talking about fair chance hiring, mm-hmm. an education process began. And this was coupled with changes in the zeitgeist in this country regarding issues of Black Lives Matter, you know, and, you know, social equity, injustices and imbalances, and sort of where the the country has been moving. It's all created this perfect storm whereby more and more people became familiar with the problems Mm -hmm. and became sort of desensitized. It used to be that people in prison are monsters, lock them up forever. But when the country engaged in the war on drugs in the 80s and the 90s, we started seeing every family was being impacted by the criminal justice system because uncles and aunts and college kids were getting arrested for dealing pot and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, it was no longer them versus us. It was them became us. And when that happens, you gotta, you know, it's cognitive dissonance. You gotta, something's gotta give. So people started looking at things a lot differently and a lot with a lot more, you know, a lot more open mind, which is great. 
We were having stunning success for us as a small business. You know, we weren't this huge organization at this stage. We were a tech startup, but we were having more success getting people jobs than in any other venture of any sort. But then the coronavirus hit. Mm-hmm. And we had other plans for us because virtually overnight in March of 2020, companies laid off all of our people. We had a very, very popular staffing business where we, we, we serve as the hire of record, of course. Mm-hmm. And overnight, they laid off everybody working in every warehouse, every manufacturing facility, you know, things were being shut down. And these are jobs, obviously, that can't be worked at from home. Right. So for a year and a half, our, re- our revenue plummeted, which was fairly devastating. Now, after a year and a half, as the economy started coming back, a very weird thing happened. The whole paradigm shifted. And all of a sudden, we're getting more demand from employers. And we have less interest in working as part of the great resignation among our job seekers. So we are swamped with big companies who are desperate to fill millions of jobs. Yeah. And we have job seekers who don't want to work. Or if they do work, they work for three days and then they leave. And it made it impossible for us to make money in that sort of situation. So it has been an incredibly challenging couple of years, um, as it has been for many businesses, you know, and we we hope things will normalize, you know, while we're still here and while we can, you know, enjoy that normalization. But it's been a challenge. So you're still seeing challenges, even though there's a huge need in the market. We hear companies talking about how they can't find anybody uh, to do, you know, their shitty job for a shitty wage. Yes. But yet they still... I mean, you're still not seeing a need in the market to try to get people into those jobs, or is it is it a supply side thing? I mean, which where's the biggest problem you're seeing? I think it is a counterintuitive uh, sociological phenomenon, whereby I don't know how people are supporting themselves if they don't have a job. It's not like these were, you know. Some explanation is given by economists that it's retired people who are deciding, screw it, I don't want to work anymore. You know, that's where some of that great resignation comes from. But, you know, it used to be that if there was a job available, we would make one phone call or one email to a job seeker to alert them of it. They would jump on the opportunity, they'd get to work the next day, and they would live happily ever after. And incidentally, as Sherm points out in their annual surveys they do, these people do really well on the job. So that was, a, that was great for our business. Everybody won. But now, for us to, let, to fill one position, it might take 10 phone calls or 10 emails and the applicant is negotiating, you know, the wages, which they never, ever did before, at, you know, this being the lower end of the wage scale. And then, and then again, as I say, they show up and two days later, they quit. So we end up having to hire five people for that one job. It just does not add up to a, you know, to good business, unfortunately. I'm blown away by that. Chad, I don't know. I I thought I expected him to say it's the golden age of my business because these people are getting hired. I I never expected you to say they're just like everyone else. They don't want to go back to work either, or they're doing other things. I, like I, I I couldn't agree with you more. 
It's something, you know, just as I had no way of expecting that we'd have a pandemic, and then I had no way of expecting how long this thing is going to drag on, and then arguably it's continuing. That blows my mind, especially that they get the job and then they leave. It's a, a workers' empowerment sort of thing. Yeah. You know, um, where quality of life and work-life balance, and and then you have other employers out there, big employers like, you know, Amazon or Walmart who are offering a lot more. Mm-hmm. And that's out there. Yeah. And they feel, you know, you're talking about jobs that really, they don't pay much. They're not very glamorous for not sure. Yeah. They have limited upside. So it's it's not that inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's a new attitude that we hadn't seen before. So for your business, I mean, that's that's not a great attitude. But overall, for somebody who's be, been behind bars in, in a, a very small cell for years, when they get out, I think they probably understand that they only have so much time left on this earth. And this very existence means a lot to them. Uh, so I guess the, the big question is, if we're seeing that shift, is there going to be a shift in your business to be able to move from low wage jobs to prospectively like developer jobs or, or things of that nature where you're actually going through manufacturing talent for the biggest companies in the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And we have done more of that middle range jobs. We've partnered with different online learning companies. We have, believe it or not, you know, in our pool of job seekers, which is vast, we have all types. We have doctors and lawyers in the Bay Area. We have developers, you know. Um, and then there's the issue of what is the crime that they committed. Pretty much every company in the United States, with the notable exception of just a couple, they have very strict, as you know, very strict parameters of what they can and cannot accept regarding backgrounds. Yeah. For example, someone who's committed a very violent crime or murder, someone who's committed a sexual crime, these people are virtually unemployable, which really begs the question, all right, they come out of 95% of people in prison are going to be released at some point. What happens to them? And if they can't get a job or a home or whatever, but if they can't get a job, then what, what alternatives have they other than to break the law again? I mean, they have to eat. They have to do something, (laughs) you know, and very often they have families, you know, where you probably can't, you wouldn't even blame them for doing what they have to do. Do Do you have any sense, any sense for like, we talk about the gig economy a lot on the show. Are are a lot of, like, if I'm convicted of murder or any kind of serious felony, um, do DoorDash and Uber and Lyft and all these gig economy um, platforms, do they they also deny uh, sort of that opportunity to people of violent felonies, convictions? Yes, very much so. Okay. Number one, in general, and every opportunity I have to say this, I jump on. Tech companies pretty much suck as it relates to what we call fair chance hiring. Oh, yeah. They talk a good game. You know, they act like they're progressive and enlightened and, you know, all that stuff. 
but in reality, they do almost no, you know, uh, fair chance hiring or second chances. If they do it, they do it as a pilot program with three people and they make sure that their PR department blows <laughs> it up. Oh, yeah. So it's like the biggest news. But in reality, it's it's I suspect it's the equivalent of giving up a homeless person in San Francisco a dollar and thinking you're curing homelessness. So the answer is they they do a terrible job. On top of that, you know, they're very cognizant of the optics. They have people, if you're out knocking on, you know, somebody's door delivering their Chinese food, and if someone, a bad actor, you know, screws up, yeah. you know, it could be one in a million, but that will get headlines and it'll be really bad for DoorDash. So and that's their, you know, justification for it. So they're all, they're all running background checks. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Everybody does. Everybody yeah. runs background checks. You know, you can sort of understand it. But the, but what is equally counterintuitive is the fact that these folks, people with records in general, do incredibly well on the job. OK, listener, how can you help your employees become more productive? I have answers. How about automating manual and repetitive tasks, giving meaning to data, then allowing that data to actually drive decisions. And how about matching people to your jobs quicker? Well, wait, the Chad and Cheese has a new LLM? No, Cheeseman, I'm talking about text kernel. Ah, okay. That makes more sense. What I'm hearing is the groundbreaking concept of, wait for it, Yeah. simplicity. <laughs> Seriously, though, seriously, text kernel cuts through the complexities like a tortilla chip through some hot nacho cheese. Oh, my God. Really? Nacho references already. Anyways, text kernel brings efficiency and productivity to your operations. Text kernel seamlessly unifies your tools and data to drive efficiencies and success. Text kernel is creating new opportunities for your recruitment journey. Kind of like adding guac to my barbacoa burrito. Oh, my God. How about extracting meaningful insights from data? I mean, that that's something. Swiftly matching yeah. people with jobs. Automating repetitive tasks. Who knew such advanced concepts were even possible in the land of human resources? Uh, we did, Chad. We did. Dude, wrap it up. I'm a little hungry. Imagine that. Uh, okay, listener. Get ready to use today's tech to drive efficiencies and productivity. Visit textkernel.com. That's T-E-X-T-K-E-R-N-E-L.com. Mmm, nachos. <laughs> As I said, we're, we're SHRM's, you know, Society for Human Resource Management. We are their fair chance hiring partner. And every year they do a survey of their members about, Fair chance hiring and what's been their experience. More than 80% of hiring managers that they poll report that the quality of hire when they hire someone with a record is as good as, if not better, than hiring somebody without a record. It's actually better, and the retention is better. Yeah. So that is a fucking home run in the HR world, if there ever was one. You get a good (laughs) worker who who sticks around. Chad, I think that's the first time a guest dropped the F-bomb before we did. That makes me so happy. And I fucking love it. So... So, so, so Richard, I, again, I, I understand, I mean, the, the loyalty, the retention, and I guess the, the thing that 
really bothers me about well, not just the the the, the bro culture, Silicon Valley looking down their nose at everybody, right? But also of HR and companies overall as they're waiting for these mystic individuals to pop up with the exact skill sets that they want and need, right? Instead yeah. of manufacturing them themselves. And I think that, again, the loyalty factor, the retention factor, and then the ability to actually train these individuals uh, to to do something more than a low wage position seems like again, I use your is a fucking home run, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you consider that the cost of incarceration or reincarceration is spectacular, get this: in New York City. It costs about $400,000 a year to incarcerate somebody in a place like Rikers Island. Mm-hmm. 400 grand. The average nationally is about 100 grand a year. Now, so it's not like there's not a huge amount of money that's being spent in the space. In fact, hundreds of billions are spent annually on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. But precious little is spent on training so that when people get out, which 95% will, they actually have some skills, some pathway to do the right thing. Right. And it blows my mind, you know, what's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yep. It blows my mind that it's not so crystal clear that unless you're giving someone the tools to get a job, yeah. forget about attitudes. The first thing they have to be able to do is do the job. That's yeah. the only way it's sustainable. It has right. to work in a in the capitalist market system. You know, nonprofits help a few people, but to really address the 70 million Americans with criminal records. If, if they had the tools, if they learned HVAC, if they learned how to code, if they learned there's a million jobs that we're desperate for, I'll give you one that's going to blow your mind. Yeah. You know, if you're out in the West Coast, you're not reading, you're smelling and seeing all of these forest fires, right? Right. You know that in the state of California, they go into the prisons and they get volunteers to work to help put out these fires, Okay. And people, you know, lots and lots of the people who are incarcerated choose to get involved with doing this. Sure. But you know that once they're released, they can't get the license to actually work, you know, on a fire at a fire department helping. Fires. Oh, hell no. That blows your mind, right? Yep. Yes. It's okay with their prisoners to put themselves in harm's way, but now yes. they want to actually earn a living, take care of their family, pay the taxes, uh-huh. pay rent. Sorry, we can't take you. Yeah. So, you know, these stories, they're, 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 they're not apocryphal. They're all over the place, you know, um, and they don't make any sense at all. And you're left at the end of the day wondering, well, what, what did you expect was going to happen? Right. So what does the landscape look like moving forward? Do you see this evolving into companies working directly with organizations like yours to get individuals ready so that when they do become part of society again, that they do have that solid transition, that fluid transition into a job. I believe that 
in general, things have improved. I was released from prison in 2005, so that's about 16, 17 years ago. And there has been a sea change in attitude from that point to now. That's good. So, you know, and particularly over the last couple of years, again, with Black Lives Matter, you know, it's like two thirds of my brothers and sisters in prison are people of color. So, you know, we're definitely seeing improvement, albeit at a glacial pace, but nonetheless, you know, over time it's happening. Part of the problem exists that um, training people is not terribly scalable. Some of it can be done online, but then you're talking about, you know, people have to have laptops and three quarters of people who come out of prison don't have access to a laptop or a desktop computer. So how do they take a class? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's happening and I think there's opportunity and I think there's commercial opportunity to be involved in their training. And that's something that I'm keenly interested in, you know, but it takes a lot of money um, to get it going. But uh, I think that's what has to happen. And the needs exist. You know, there are certain jobs that we have hundreds of thousands of people or available positions for them, you know, you know, they, but they need to be trained to do it. That's typically where government gets involved on that sort of, you know, big infrastructure level. I thought that if Biden could get this infrastructure bill, you know, passed, that that would create a huge amount of opportunity. Yeah. But God only knows if that's ever going to happen. Whenever we do an interview like this, I generally go to the website and just sort of uh, poke around and, and see uh, any, anything interesting that I could find. One of the things that stood out to me, a couple of things actually, but I wanted to ask kind of maybe a dumb question. Uh, your headline reads on the site, misdemeanor and felony friendly jobs. I don't think that as an outsider looking in, I ever thought that folks with misdemeanors had issues. Can you Can you talk about the division between misdemeanors and felonies and, and how your your database is divided. And is that a big issue, having misdemeanors and getting employment? Um, well, certainly, you know, there are more opportunities for people who have merely a misdemeanor versus a felony. And then within the pantheon of felonies you could commit, there's a wide range of crimes that people commit. And, you know, the, the most violent or the sexual crimes, again, render people virtually unemployable. We, we, we try to have integrity when we say that they're misdemeanor or felony friendly, because very often a job seeker with a record finds some resource that says there's a job there. Mm-hmm. They go through you know the considerable effort to apply, which typically means they had to create a resume that they didn't have. And they had to get the clothes to wear for an interview and they had to get transportation, which wasn't easy. And, you know, on and on. It's not it's a challenge for them in ways you'd never would consider. Um, And then they go on the interview and they're prepared and they do their very best. But it turns out they don't get the job because the company in a million years just wasn't going to hire them based upon the background. And if you imagine if you are a middle aged man or woman, you know, particularly with a family and you're going on 10 interviews like this. Yeah. And every interview you go on is one step lower because you're willing to more consider something that initially you didn't think you'd have to consider. Yeah. And here you are at McDonald's in 
in Galveston, Texas, where the minimum wage is, I think, seven thirty-five an hour, and McDonald's doesn't want to hire you full-time because they have to give you benefits, so the job is for like 30 hours a week, and you're being interviewed by some 17-year-old kid who looks at your resume and says no. I mean, imagine your self-esteem. Yeah. Like you couldn't even get a job at seven thirty-five an hour making taking home $140 a week or whatever. Yeah. And, and you can't even get that. Imagine just psychologically what that would do to you to, to a part. I mean, it's I can't even imagine it. Yeah. And you can only you can only understand why. They have to go back to you know exactly. life of crime. I mean, yeah. it, you can't no alternative. Yeah, it, it is a myth. Well, it almost sounds better. Well, it's not almost better. It's a whole lot better. Not having any money is objectively yes sort of the, the, the negative baseline, particularly right. if you have a family that needs to eat. So anything, you know, that can give you begging is better than that, not than people starving. But but it's a myth because it's all people too easily will say, well, you know, these are people, they're animals. That's all they ever want to be is in prison. That, like those are yeah. all like old myths, you know, that like our great grandparents may have thought. But it's not true. Trust me, nobody wants to be in prison. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Is, you know, other than like 12 totally psychotic people, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But, but uh, other than that, nobody wants to be in prison. Another follow-up from sort of the website is you have something called the uh, Commissary Club. Yes. I don't know if that's like a LinkedIn alternative or talk about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so when the pandemic hit, and companies stopped new hiring. You know, the only companies that were hiring were companies like Amazon, which all of a sudden had tens of millions of people without records that they could hire. So that's what they did. So we were essentially just shoved out of business. What are we going to do? Um, it, you know, I have investors. We have venture capital firms and angel investors who've invested in the company. You know, and we have an obligation to the population we serve as well as my team. So what are we going to do? We're not going to quit. Um, the two things we discovered early on that our population desperately wanted. The first was employment. That, that much we knew, obviously. The other thing was community. They have precious little opportunity to connect with one another. They lack the opportunity to get advice, to have people help them, make connections for them to uh, be inspired by one another, to gain friendship. You're, brought, you're taken out of prison where every decision has been made for you and you're thrown into the world and you, you're forced to get a job, get clothes, get transportation, find housing. And, you know, if you went away when you were 17 years old and now you're 33, yeah. you know, and you, you have no tech, technology skills, imagine what a lonely, scary place the word, world must be. Yeah, I can't. And, and so and you have no opportunity to connect with others who understand what you're going through and could be of a, a help to you. Yeah. So we thought, let's create sort of like Facebook for ex-cons. Now, my using the phrase ex-con is very politically incorrect, but I guess I'm allowed to do it because I'm an ex-con. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's what we've created. It's a mobile app, uh, commissary.club, and people connect there and people help each other and people become friends 
And, you know, we're building a community there. Well, Richard, I got to say, man, we really appreciate you coming on, talking about this. I'm going to say it again. U.S., 5% of the world's population, 25% of the incarcerated. We have a problem. And we also have a problem on the side of actually getting jobs filled. There's an opportunity here. And you should be reaching out to Richard Bronson at the 70millionjobs.com website. Uh, Richard, we we really enjoyed having you on. And if somebody wants to connect with you easily, where where can they find you? Contact me at Richard at 70millionjobs.com. The number 70 jobs with an S.com. My message beyond anything else is you would be shocked at how good these folks perform on the job. Unlike everybody else, they really appreciate the job, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and all they want to do is find a home where they can grow and have a chance to, you know, lead a safe, productive legal life. Yeah, man. Well, we appreciate awesome. it. Definitely stay in touch with us. Let us know what's going on. And we definitely want to hear from you again to so come back on the podcast. So again, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Richard. Chad, another one in the books, baby. We out. We- oh. Thank you for listening to what's it called? The podcast. The Chad. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout-outs of people you don't even know, and yet you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. There's so many cheeses, and not one word. So weird. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.chadcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out! How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.